Good morning. We had a traffic jam in the middle of the church. That doesn't happen very often, does it? <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. How are you today? That was pathetic. <laughs> Everybody's good? Good. Sorry, I forgot to make a note in my Bible, and I wanted to do that real quick so that I know where to stop and start, because I'll just keep on reading if I don't. Man, today we are going to move forward in our uh, study of the book of Luke, and believe it or not, we are going to finish chapter 2 today. Woohoo! So that'll be another achievement unlocked. Um, we got an exciting passage today. Um, it's exciting because we've been going through the birth narrative for the last couple of months, and this is the first time that Jesus gets to speak for himself. Everything we've read prior to this is somebody else speaking on Jesus' behalf, whether it be God or an angel or Mary or Joseph or, uh, or Zachariah, um, lots of, and, and Elizabeth as well. So a lot of opportunity for other people to speak, but up until this point, moment in the narrative, um, Nobody's, or Jesus has not gotten to, to speak on his own. And today we're going to see him respond to his father and mother. And in doing so, he's going to reveal an important part of our nature uh, to us. And I'm excited for that. Last week we learned about Anna and the prophetess and how um, she proclaimed the good news that the Messiah had arrived. In studying that passage, we affirmed the ministry of women in the church and their ability to hear and speak on God's behalf as his spokesperson. We saw that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that this was a well-established and understood ministry. This moment in the birth narrative, it's important because Anna's prophecy is held up as a second reliable witness, um, it's specifically to his circumcision and to the things that they did in the temple in accordance to the law. We're going to see that in the first part of our passage today, uh, another affirmation of that. And that's important because after Jesus dies and is resurrected, the, the, the Jewish tradition is going to do everything they can to discredit the person of Jesus. And so we're going to see these reliable witnesses kind of sprinkled through the gospel of Luke as we're moving through it. So, uh, and then also many of us, if you were there, you know, we, we came together Friday night for secret church and learned together about the heart of God for all people. Um, the heart of God was also contrasted against our hearts as, as fallen people. And it was incredible to say the least. And, and you're going to see a few glimpses of that message sprinkled in today as, as we go through our passage. Um, earlier in the week, as I was preparing for this message, I really felt led by God. This was I think Monday or Tuesday, really felt led that we needed to spend some time at the end of our message, particularly today, and then we'll probably do this in the future, to just spend some time in prayer and reflection on what God has to say for us today. And for me, like, I kind of thought about that this week as, you know, used to we didn't do testimonies. And as we were preaching through the book of Hebrews, God um, put it on my heart that we needed to, to spend some time sharing with one another what God was doing in our lives. And we know how incredible that has been for our body. So I'm hoping that this will be something that'll, that'll kind of catch on and will feel the same way for us. But I wanted to give you a heads up on that. So when it happens at the end of the sermon, you're not going to be surprised by it. You're going to be like, whoa, what's going on? What's Will doing? I'm going to invite David to come up and he's going to play some stuff on the piano just to ease the awkwardness just a little bit. You know, that makes everybody more comfortable. So I'll lead at that time and David's going to come up and play. So when that begins to happen, just know this is a time for us to, to reflect. Um, and I'm going to kind of give you some prompts to pray through as we're going through that. But I also want to encourage you, um, it's not something that we do a lot, but if any time during that, if you'd like to be prayed for um, by one of our elders, just come down forward and that'll be a cue for them. Heads up elders, Carrie, I don't know if you'll be in the drum cage or not, probably not at that time, but... If somebody comes forward, if, you want to, if you'd like to be prayed for with an elder, just come on up here where there's nobody, and, and that'll be the, the cue. All right, everybody good with that? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. 
All right, so in today's passage, we're going we're gonna to see the narrative skip forward about 12 years, right? Again, Mary and Joseph have brought Jesus to the temple to celebrate the Passover, and that's where our story's going to pick up. So before we get to that, I want to take a moment to discuss some theology. And remember, theology is just a fancy way of saying this is what we believe about God, right? We need to talk about this prior to the reading of the passage to be reminded about the nature of Jesus. This is often referred to as a hypostatic union. And it helps us to understand the incarnation of Jesus, right? This idea that, um, that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And any of us that have been to a math class look at that and say, that's not how percentages work, right? Everybody agree? But God is a lot bigger than we are. This, this, this idea, the unity of Jesus' person is something we're going to talk about a little bit today because it's going to inform how we understand the gospel. And if you would put that next slide up there. Because I just want you to see, we're, we're working through some systematic theology here. And so today you'll see all the way out there on, on the right, the, the unity of Jesus' person. Okay, and I want to read a few things from some theological books today. Because they're going to say it a lot better than I do. It says, the unity of Christ is the doctrine that Jesus, although he possesses two distinct and complete natures, he is simultaneously fully God and fully man, is nevertheless one integral person, God the Son incarnate. The incarnation of the person of the eternal Son of Jesus Christ is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. This personal incarnation in which the Word became flesh, which is in John 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, is often referred to as the hypostatic union, after the Greek words hypostatus, which came to function as a uh, patristic error in the technical term for a person. Okay, so John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. We observed his glory and the glory as the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So within Jesus, we see both divinity and his humanity. So let's look at his divinity for a minute, because if you'll look at that next one, you'll see it kind of drop down and it branches off. We're going to talk about his divinity and his humanity. His divinity, the Bible affirms repeatedly that Christ is fully God, speaking even of the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. He is the image of the invisible God, the one through whom and for whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together. He is the exact imprint of God's nature and is addressed by God as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Before his incarnation and during it, he had equality with God. Okay, so here's where I want us to land with that. Jesus is God, 100%. He is God. Okay, it says that this doctrine affirms that Jesus Christ was not merely an extraordinary human being, but the incarnate Son of God, who by nature is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. So we're sandwiching them together. God and Jesus are one, right? Well, let's talk about his humanity. It says the Bible also affirms repeatedly that Christ is fully man, speaking of the man Christ Jesus, and the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Paul says. And being found in human form, he did what only a human can do. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is man. He's 100% human. And yet there is only one Jesus, one will, one Jesus who knew the hearts of men because he was omniscient God and yet a man himself, one unified divine person. The humanity of Christ is his nature as man, 
which is, of course, distinct from his divine nature. Okay? So, Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. So, as we dive in today, remember that Jesus is both fully divine, that is God, and is also fully human. They are separate yet distinct, and we're going to see how that plays out in the life of a young Jesus. We're also going to see how that affects our relationship with Jesus and with the Father. Okay, so let's read together the Word of God as found in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verses 39 through 52 today. It says, When he had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Okay, so this is right after Anna's prophecy. Then it says, The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down from them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in the favor with God and with people. So as an infant, Jesus was consecrated in the temple, accompanied by prophetic messages regarding his future ministry. His childhood was characterized by a growth in wisdom and grace, it says. In particular, a strong desire to learn of God his Father and to understand the scriptures, okay? So the first point I want us to understand today is that Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge of God. This is why I wanted to take the time today to talk about the unity of Jesus' person. If we don't stop and think about what scripture is saying, we're going to run right past this. I want you to think about this. I don't know if, this, if you've thought about this before, but Jesus was not born. He didn't come to earth with the wisdom and knowledge of God. Remember Paul said that he emptied himself out? right? I want you to imagine for a moment a baby being born with the knowledge and wisdom of God. That would be super awkward, right? Come out of the womb being able to talk? That'd be strange, right? So Jesus emptied himself, okay? Jesus wasn't born with wisdom and God's knowledge. He learned it by studying and spending time with God. Look at verse 40 again. It says, the boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him, okay? If you already have wisdom, You don't need to be filled with it. But just like Jesus, you and I are born without wisdom, and there's only one way for us to get it. Paul says in his letter to the the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, he said, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who is existing in the form of God, not to consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus emptied himself so that he could become like us. 
He gave up that knowledge and that wisdom that existed in him in heaven when he was with the Father. And he gave all that up to be born to become like us. So he therefore had to regain all they had given up. And this is why we see him here in the temple. It says that his family went to Jerusalem to the temple to celebrate Passover every year. Okay, And just like Jesus, we gain wisdom by spending time with God and by studying his word. And the result of Jesus spending time and coming to know God was his perfect life and ministry. And we can see that from the testimony of John, that Jesus was, in fact, the Word of God. John says this in John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, excuse me, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we read a while ago, a little further down in verse 14, he said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory and the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, John begins that letter by saying, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So Jesus comes emptied and he spends time studying the word, spending time with the priest learning about who his father was and through that process filling himself back up with the knowledge and the wisdom of God and we're never going to be like Jesus right but we will benefit greatly from knowing God as much as humanly possible it's through the spending time with the father studying his word and understanding all that God is going to do to redeem his people this is how we become more like Jesus it's how the world comes to know about Jesus Friday night we spent six hours of intense study of God's Word and expanded my understanding of God's heart for His people. I understand it in a way that I didn't know before. And it also revealed places in my own heart where I desperately need Jesus. And if we truly want to know God, we have to spend time with Him, learning from Him. I can just imagine Jesus as a young man in the temple just soaking up all that the priests were giving Him. Listening, asking questions, trying to understand. Remember when we went through Hebrews and we began to understand that this redemption story that the author of Hebrews is telling is our story? You remember how that changes our understanding of who we are in God's eyes? That God has been orchestrating world events through all of history so that we could know him. And that knowledge comes through a study of the word and having the spirit inside of us. It's through the spending of time with God and the testimony of his parents and relatives that Jesus understood who he was and what God wanted from his life. Don't think for a second that Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zachariah didn't tell Jesus about all the stuff that happened. He didn't like turn 12 one day and they're like, oh, by the way, you're a pretty cool guy, right? He knew this stuff. I'm sure the stories were spread everywhere. This is point number two, that Jesus understood his purpose in life. Look at verses 41 through 50 with me again. It said, Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festivals. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was traveling in the party, they went a day's journey, and then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. 
And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he said to them. Jesus knew as a 12-year-old boy what his purpose was. He knew, maybe not fully all that would happen in his life, but he knew that he was the son of God. And he had the desire in him to know the father. They're celebrating the Passover, which is a seven-day feast. And after it's over, Joseph and his family uh, head back to Nazareth. But Jesus doesn't go. He stays behind. And he stays behind to do what? It said that he was in the temple listening and asking questions. He was learning about God. He was learning about God's people. He was learning about God's redemption plan. And not only were the teachers amazed, but his parents were amazed as well. In Secret Church, David Platt points out that through Scripture, this idea of three days usually points towards the death of something. And I don't think this is an allusion towards Jesus' being dead three days. I think this is an allusion towards an end in Jesus' life, of a, or a stage of life, let me say it that way. This childhood stage was ending and Jesus was beginning to step into a new phase of life. At the age of 12, there was a significant shift in the life of boys in Jerusalem. One of my commentaries said this. He said, if the Mishnah is relevant to the first century Jewish practice, which likely is the case, then religious instruction would have become more intense for Jesus upon his reaching 12. So this religious training intensified at the age of 12. And because Jesus knew who he was, but more specifically who his father was, he took that very seriously. So Jesus is 12 years old. He knows Based on Jewish religion, when I turn 12, it's time to get to work. And so that's why he's there. He spent seven days in the temple celebrating the Passover. And his parents leave, and he's like, man, I'm not done yet. I got more to learn. This is why he responds to Mary the way he does. He says, didn't you know it was necessary for me in my father's house? He's going, mom, I got a lot to learn. I can't get it done in seven days. There's a lot more I need to know. But Mary and Joseph didn't understand what Jesus was saying to them. And this is not going to be the only time in Jesus' life that people don't understand what he's saying. His life was very different from theirs because Jesus understood his purpose. And his whole life became focused on it. We see the beginning of that focus right here at 12 years old. And when I think about that singular focus, it makes me think of the movie John Wick. If you haven't seen it, he's a man of singular focus. There's your pop culture reference for today. So God has a purpose for your life, and it begins with salvation, and then it grows into your call to make disciples, church. Jesus knew his purpose. This is our purpose, to know God and to make him known. Just like Jesus, we must grow in knowledge and understanding of God. And look what happens when Jesus grows in this way. Look at verses 51 and 52 again. It says, they went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he was obedient to his mother, and kept all these things, she kept all these things in her heart. It says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. So point number three is that Jesus grew into his calling and it drew people to him. Okay, there's a couple of words that are key uh, here in verse 52 and they're worth calling out. The first one, it says that Jesus increased, okay? And I put this in the outline if you want to look at it, but it's uh, prokopto which means to progress, to increase, to accomplish, 
and to draw close. This is a progressive growth, one that moves forward until its completion. It was necessary for Jesus to progressively grow until completion. And the same, if it's necessary for him, it's necessary for us as well. To increase in knowledge. Number two, it says Jesus increased in wisdom, which that word is Sophia, which means wisdom, insight, or a specialized skill, but specifically the ability to apply that wisdom, insight, or skill. And we're going to see this wisdom reveal itself as Jesus interacts with people, especially the religious leaders, his ability to, to take the words of God and apply that to a specific scenario in a way that is profound to those that are supposed to know the word the best, the religious leaders. Jesus understood the scriptures and he was able to apply them to daily life. He's able to look at a situation and to see it as God saw it and then apply God's word to that situation. The third thing it says is that he increased in stature, which is helikia, which means lifetime, maturity of age or bodily height. He's saying that literally Jesus grew up, right? He was a baby And he grew up to 12, and now he grows up again to become a man. This is a process that all people go through, but sometimes we only grow up physically. We neglect the wisdom part of growth. And so we become physically mature, but not mentally or spiritually mature. Okay, we're getting the picture here of what what is happening, what they're saying about Jesus, what Luke is saying. Jesus grew up, and he increased in wisdom progressively. We, too, need to grow progressively. We don't need to be the, we don't know the exact time frame that this one verse covers, but we'll assume it's approximately 18 years. It's believed that Jesus' ministry began when he was about 30 years old, which makes us ask ourselves, okay, I want you to ask yourself this week, how old am I spiritually and how much have I grown in wisdom? Am I satisfied with where I am? And more importantly, is God satisfied with where I am? We have to ask this question because look at the third thing that Jesus increased in. It says Jesus increased in favor with God and people. And this, is, this word, the Greek word here is harris, which means kindness, grace, gift, goodwill, or thanks. We saw this word used in a previous passage in Luke chapter 1, verse 30. It says, then the angel told her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. We also see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 46 through 47, where they're describing what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, Luke says there, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. And they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The title of that section in Acts is A Generous and Growing Church. You see, as Jesus is growing in wisdom, he is growing in favor with God and with people. People are being drawn to him because of his likeness to God. And church, as we grow, we too are going to grow in favor with God and with people. Favor with with people is a marker of a faith that is progressively growing as we grow. As we know God better, people are drawn to us. And we see that in the life of Jesus. And we see it in the life of the early church. And we should see it in our lives. We should see it in our church. At the end of the Jonah study, um, Friday night, 
David Platt makes the comment, he says that we are just like Jonah. We like our comforts. We lack concern for others. We don't like God's commission. And we don't like God's character. Let me break that down for you if you weren't in that study. He's saying that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because it was the capital of Assyria. And the Syrians were a horrible, horrible people who had done horrible, horrible things to the Jewish nation, right? And God tells Jonah, I want you to go to these people whom treated you horribly. I want you to share the gospel with them. And so Jonah does. He goes and gives a five-word sermon, tells the people to repent, and the whole city does from the lowest to low all the way up to the king. And Jonah gets furious with God. He said, this is why I didn't want to come, because I knew you would do this. He said, I knew that you would give them grace. What David identified is that we, like Jonah, love grace when it's poured out on us, and we hate it when it's poured out on our enemies. When we think about the Great Commission, we talk about that all the time. We talk about making disciples. But I think that we often don't like God's commission because it requires us to do things that are outside of our comfort zone. It requires us to love people that we don't want to love. It requires us to do things that we don't want to do. Church, if we are not growing personally and progressively, if our church is not growing, it's because we are like Jonah. We're focused on ourselves. We're focused on what do I want? What do I need to get? Jonah didn't go to Nineveh because he knew that God would show grace. And he didn't want those people to have grace. Now, I think there are people in our lives who we probably feel that way about. But I think a lot of times what holds us back is not even that we don't want people to know grace. We just don't want to experience uncomfort. We don't want to give up that part of who we are. We don't want to give up that part of our lives. What we see in our passage today is that Jesus turns 12 and has this massive desire to know the Father. And so he pours his life into that. And he comes to know the Father. And they become one, just like we read today. The Father and I are one. And he prays for you and I. He prays for those that we are going to share the gospel with. He's going before you in that. And He's asking us to share the grace that we have been given with the people around us that need that grace. Dave, if you would, go ahead and come up. Today we're going to pray for a couple of things. I think I made a slide to put, to put up there so that I don't have to read them each time. But today I want us to, to spend some time praying in repentance praying about the lives that we have made about ourselves. I want us to pray for the salvation of our family and friends that God has placed in our lives. I want us to pray for continual growth, that God would increase our knowledge and wisdom as we spend time with Him. And I want to pray that God would help us to understand our calling to make disciples, that God would give us a desire to teach others what we have learned, a desire to know that grace. So this morning... I want us to bow our heads right where you are, and we're just going to have a moment of, of prayer. We'll be silent at first, and then I'll, I'll hit each one of these prompts as we kind of move through. But for now, let's, let's begin. Lay your heart out before the Lord and ask Him to show you areas of your life where you've made it all about you. Areas of your life where you have refused to give up control because of a, a desire for comfort or your own agenda. 
Jesus, we know. We know that often you are not the center of our lives. We know that we push you aside for the sake of the things that we desire. And Father, we ask this morning for your forgiveness. Father, we repent before you. Father, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts that we cannot do for ourselves. Father, that you would change the way we see the world. Father, this, this morning right now, Lord, I want to ask that you would give us a moment to just lift up those people in our lives that we know need you. Those people that we know you have called us to. Those people that we know that we have not given the time that you've asked us to give. Father, we pray right now for their salvation. Father, i got three men on my mind right now that I know well and I know do not have a relationship with you. Father, I ask that you would work in my heart to make their salvation a priority in my life. Not that I can bring it upon them, Father. We know that only you can do that. Only your spirit draws people to you. But Father, I ask that you would, you would bring those men to mind regularly throughout every day. Father, that I may cry out on their behalf. And Lord, I ask that you would reveal to me more opportunities to share the gospel with them. Whether it be through a kind word or through sitting down and walking through the plan of salvation. Father, I ask that for all of my brothers and sisters in this room as well. Father, I ask that you would give us a desire that you would put in us whatever is necessary for us to continue to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of you. Father, that as we would do that, Lord, as your word says that you would draw those people to yourself, that you would draw those people to us, that they would see your glory in our lives. Father, that we would be like Jesus to sit at your feet with a desire and a hunger to know you. Father, as we come to know you more and more, Lord, I ask that you would develop in each of our hearts and our minds our call to make disciples. Father, that you would impress upon us the weight that comes with that, the responsibility that comes with that, with the, with the joy, with the life that comes from getting to share you with our brothers and sisters, the people in the world around us. 
Father, I, I ask that you would put a desire in us, a, an unquenchable fire to help people to know who you are. And God, I pray specifically for all of the people in this room, Father, that beyond just our obedience to the Great Commission, God, that you would help us to understand your purpose for our life, the specific areas of ministry that you have called us to. Father, our desire is to know you and to make you known. And the way that happens is by us fulfilling the needs that you have placed around us, the ones that you have called us to. Father, I ask in this moment that you would make that crystal clear for every person in this room. Father, that we would know exactly what it is that you have for us to do from day to day. And Father, I ask that you would give us a greater desire to fulfill those roles than anything else in this world. That God, knowing you and walking in obedience would be our singular focus. That everything else beyond that is secondary. Father, I ask that you would work in our hearts today. That as we think about, as we pray about, as we meditate on what it means to grow in knowledge and wisdom of you. Father, I ask that you would expand our understanding of who you are to the very limits of what we can handle. And Father, we trust in faith, just as your word says, that as we do that, we will fall deeper in love with you. God, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the testimony of the church. I'm thankful for Jesus. The fact that he emptied himself to become like me so that he could save me from myself. Father, as we move forward out into this week, Lord, as we finish up in worship this morning, I ask that your spirit would be present in our lives in a way that we cannot even explain. Father, walk with us. Help us to be like the early church grew in number day by day because of the love that they saw in the people, the love of God flowing through the church. Father, we ask that for this body. But we don't want to build this place for our sake, God. We want people to know you. We want people to understand your love. God, we want people to understand that you have been working since the beginning of time on their behalf so that you could live, or they could live the life through you that you intended for them. Jesus, we need your help to be like you. And we ask for it in your name. Amen.